You are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I do have a big announcement I want to give before we dive into the podcast. Uh, my newest book will be releasing very shortly through G3 Press. I'm very thankful for Josh Bice and Scott Annual and Virgil Walker, who are the leaders of the G3 ministry. We are part of the G3 network. And my new book is called 40 Days in Philippians, Finding Joy in Jesus. Basically, it is a 40-day devotional guide that goes verse by verse, expositionally, through the book of Philippians. Uh, This was the idea of my wife, who uh, was frustrated that she could not find a personal devotional that was not fluffy or had a lot of stories, but not a lot of scripture, but she didn't want something like a commentary that went real technical, so she said, you should write a verse-by-verse expositional devotional that goes deep into the text, but at the same time has personal application and worship and, and scripture and just an opportunity to pray and to reflect upon the glories of Christ. So you can pre-order that book now through G3 Press. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It'll probably be, be late May or early June before the books actually ship, but I do want to let you as my listeners know that my newest book, 40 Days in Philippians, will be out shortly, and I would appreciate it if you would check it out. Well, in the last podcast, we talked about expository preaching, and I said I was going to take us on a journey over the next few months on what that looks like when I teach these um, expository preaching workshops around the country. Uh, These workshops are called Feeding the Flock, and so last podcast, we talked about the role of preaching in the Old Testament. And we talked about how our God is a speaking God, and he spoke the creation into existence. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through the priest. He spoke in times of revival through the preaching of God's word. We looked at Nehemiah chapter 8, and so I encourage you to go back and and listen to that initial podcast on preaching in the Old Testament. And so in this podcast, we are going to look at the New Testament, in particular, John the Baptist and Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the preaching of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 and see how God spoke through the preaching of John the Baptist. And in John the Baptist, we're going to see four aspects of authentic gospel proclamation. So hopefully you have a Bible with you. Let's just look at John chapter, I mean, sorry, John, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all by saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him from, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Okay, so we are going to look at preaching, not necessarily expository preaching, but gospel proclamation in the model that we see here in John the Baptist. And we see four os- aspects of authentic gospel preaching. And here is the first. We must confront people with their sin and guilt. We must confront people with their sin and get- guilt. Now, how did some of the people respond to John's preaching? In verse 8, there was self-justification. He said, Bear fruits keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones uh, children for Abraham. In, in Matthew's account of this, John records, uh, uh, Matthew records John as saying, Don't presume. Or don't be presumptuous that you are innocent. And so when we engage in gospel proclamation, when we preach and herald the gospel, we need to realize that many people don't want to admit that they are sinful. Many people don't want to admit that they're lawbreakers. Many don't want to admit that they're idolaters at heart. And and many don't accept the good news of Jesus as Savior and Lord and the cure for their sin because they don't think they have the disease of sin in the first place. And this cure of the good news is not good news to them because they don't think they're sick and they need it. So I've done other podcasts on the law and gospel. As a matter of fact, if you go listen to some of the sermons I've been preaching through 1 Timothy, I preached a sermon on law and gospel. What is the purpose of the first use of the law? Well, you see John the Baptist here addressing their sin and guilt. Secondly, we must warn people about the reality of hell. John warns them to flee the wrath to come. This is strong language. What does the Bible say about the wrath to come? Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain, calling to the mountain and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The concept of eternal conscious torment in hell is never a pleasing subject. We do not often talk about the wrath to come, impending judgment, the dangers of hell. We live in a seeker-sensitive therapeutic culture that does not want to be confronted with sin or hell. But it's not loving to not warn people about hell. It's not loving to be silent about the wrath to come. Oftentimes we as Christians who hold to the truth of God's gospel, we are oftentimes accused of being not winsome or being mean or being judgmental or not being relevant or in touch with the culture. We need to tone it down so that we can win an audience. And to some extent, I understand where they're coming from. But in order to be faithful to the full proclamation of the gospel, we've got to address sin, guilt, and the wrath to come. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes about hell and evangelism and preaching, Spurgeon said this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. So number one, we need to warn people of their guilt and their sin before a holy God. Number two, we need to warn people of the wrath to come. And then what we see in John the Baptist is number three, we must call people to repent with urgency. Now what John the Baptist does there in verses four and five and six is he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, what is repentance and, and why is this a message of repentance? Notice what he says there. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. Repentance means to be made low, to be lowered, to be humbled, to be made straight, to be converted and changed from your sin to following Christ. It means that you're not only convicted of sin, but you're broken hearted over your sin. You hate your sin. It, it means a change of mind, an inward change of heart that results in an outward confession of faith and trust in Christ. You know, John Calvin, in his Institutes 
of the Christian religion has a really good section on repentance. And, and just a side note, if you have not read the Institutes, I encourage you to go read it. Now, you're not going to sit down and read it in one setting. It's a, it's a huge book. Uh, but if you go into Calvin's, and I think it's in, it's in book three, uh, and it's in chapter three, repentance. So the Institutes are divided up into books and then within the books there's chapters and within the chapters there's paragraphs but this is in book three but calvin says this he, he says repentance is a real conversion of our life unto god proceeding from sincere and serious fear of god we are living in a culture that has no fear of god People are flaunting their sin as if they are not accountable to anyone at all, much less their creator who is a holy and sovereign God. And so we must confront people with the holiness of God and the absolute righteousness of God so that they fear God so that they can truly repent from their sins. Thomas Watson, the, the Puritan, said this, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Repentance is really an inward grace that the Holy Spirit does in us that brings about repentance. So it's an inward change of heart and mind, but it results in, or the fruit of that, is a visible reformation of life. It's change. So repentance involves a desire to escape the wrath to come and that you know that your only hope is to flee to Jesus for salvation. And so fourth, we must urge sinners to trust in Jesus. Notice what he says there in verse 16. I baptized you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing, winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Notice that John the Baptist calls Jesus the mightier one or the powerful one, the all-sufficient Savior. John does not preach himself, but he always focuses everything on Jesus. In John's gospel, we have those great words of John the Baptist in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's in the present tense in the original language. Literally, he must continually be increasing, and I must continually be decreasing. And Paul echoes the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim, what we preach, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Much of the preaching that you may listen to in evangelicalism is very me-centered. The pastor may tell a lot of stories about himself, a lot of illustrations, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of uh, just interesting things that never get to Christ. You have not preached a faithful Christian sermon unless you exalt Christ and offer Christ in all of his glory to the sinner for salvation. You don't preach yourself. You and I preach Christ. And what's Jesus going to do, John the Baptist says here? He's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does this mean? Jesus will do an internal cleansing 
and renewal through the power of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit means that we will be regenerated. We will be born again. We will go from spiritual death to spiritual life. We will be transformed by the Spirit into a new creation. So coming to Jesus in faith means a total inward transformation, a regeneration, a complete spiritual change, total forgiveness. And if you notice here, John confronted Herod about his incestuous infidelity with his brother's wife. And it ended up getting John locked up in prison. And so he suffered for confronting the, governor, the, the governing leaders of the day. He, he went before Herod and he suffered because of that. Now, this may not always happen to you and be that severe, but here's what we should expect. If you rightly preach the full gospel, you should expect negative reactions whenever you share the gospel with sinners. As those who are dead in their sins, spiritually blind, God-haters, anytime you warn a person of the reality of hell, you confront their sin and that they will experience the wrath of God to come if they don't repent and believe in Jesus, you're going to get pushback. Anytime you call a person to repent and forsake their sin and idolatry and to trust in Jesus alone is the only way of salvation, you're going to get pushback. So we see in John the Baptist just this continuing stream of God speaking through men that have been appointed to herald or proclaim a message. In the Old Testament, it was the prophets. Now, John the Baptist is, is the hinge between the Old and New Testament. And some would say John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Even though he wasn't in the Old Testament, he's the forerunner to Jesus. He's the hinge upon which the Old Testament swings to the New because he's directly pointing to Jesus when he says, Behold, he, he points to Jesus literally walking along the way there. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what I want to do now for the rest of the podcast is explain to you how Jesus himself was an expository preacher. And if you go back to John, uh, Luke chapter 4, so we just looked at Luke chapter 3. We go to Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth and preaches in the synagogue. And so... Thomas Watson, again, that, uh, the great Puritan, said this, Jesus alone is the prince of preachers. He alone is the best of expositors. Amen and amen. He's the best of expositors. Now, I'm going to show you here how Jesus does expositional preaching. We don't often think about this because Jesus spoke in parables where he generated his own truth because he is God in the flesh and he has the power to be able to tell parables and let that be the truth of God's word. But what we see in Luke chapter 4 is Jesus preaching from an Old Testament text, the text of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, giving an exposition upon what the Old Testament text said. So let's read Luke chapter 4 starting in verse 14 and going through verse 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This passage in Luke clearly demonstrates that Jesus indeed ministered as an expository preacher. And I want to show you four key elements of a biblical expositional sermon right from the lips of our Lord Jesus himself. Now the first is very important. We first see that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, Jesus returned, this is from his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. It's very important to note here that Jesus was empowered or anointed by the Holy Spirit before he preached or in order to give him unction or power to teach and preach. Now, obviously, there's a great difference between us and Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Lord. He is God in the flesh. He is totally God and totally man, fully God and fully man. But Luke here does say that there was the equipping or the empowering of the Spirit upon Jesus' life and ministry in his preaching and teaching ministry. So we can think about all the theological ramifications about that, but let's just think about ourselves for a moment. If Jesus, if it's recorded here that Jesus himself was empowered by the Spirit to preach and teach, how much more than do we as sinners, frail, helpless, hopeless, clueless at times, need the power of the Spirit when we, in fact, preach? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, What is significant is that even our Lord himself, the Son of God, could not have exercised his ministry as a man on earth if he had not received this special peculiar anointing of the Holy Spirit to perform his task. Stephen Alford has said this, what we need today is a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit if our ministry is to penetrate the hearts of saints and sinners alike. Where there is an anointing, there is authority. 
We need spirit-empowered preachers to stand up with spirit-empowered boldness and declare boldly, thus saith the Lord. This is an element, I think, that's often missing in a lot of our preaching. And the the old Puritans and Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preachers of the past, understood this special sacred anointing. As a matter of fact, Spurgeon called it the sacred anointing. George Whitfield called it thunder and lightning. Lloyd-Jones called it the smile of God upon the preacher. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, Paul says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Is the power and Spirit of God evident in your preaching? If you're listening to this in your preacher or if you're listening to your pastor, is there evidence of an empowering by the Holy Spirit? First Thessalonians 1.5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So let me ask you a question. Number one, if you're a pastor or you're a preacher, do you pray for a sacred anointing when you preach? Do you pray for the power of the Spirit to fall upon your congregation when you examine the Word of God together through expository preaching. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a layperson and you listen to preaching, I can't tell you how valuable and important it is for you as a church member to specifically pray for your pastor to have this power not only when he stands up in the pulpit to preach but all throughout the week doing sermon prep is a spiritually agonizing exercise when i spend time opening the text to 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 think about and pray about it and study god's word to to craft a sermon that is faithful to the text that's going to be engaging to my congregation It is taxing emotionally and spiritually upon me and upon your pastor. So as a church member or as a uh, someone who is a lay person in your church, would you please pray diligently for your pastor in his sermon prep and when he stands up to preach in the pulpit that that power of the Spirit would rest upon him. There was an old Dutch expression, the Dutch Reformed that pastors would use during the Reformation days. And this is the best way to translate it in English. It says this, If you pray me full, I will preach you full. And that's what I often say to my congregation. If you pray me full, I'll preach you full. If you pray me full, I'll preach you full. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Are you praying for the Word of God to be honored when your pastor stands up to preach? So the first thing we see in Jesus' ministry, even before he opens up the text and preaches, is the empowering of the Spirit. But the second thing we see is that Jesus explained the Scriptures or exposited the Scriptures. Now, before I address this point, I think it's important to note that this sermon took place in the synagogue. 
which was the local Jewish church in each village. So what actually happened in a synagogue worship service? Well, it's very surprising that you'll find a lot of things that happen in the synagogue are what we do today. The rabbis, or the local pastor, if you will, would lead the service. So as people came to the synagogue on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, this was before the Lord's Day, there would be the singing of the Psalms, there would be the reading of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, there would be the repetition of the 18 blessings, there would be a reading from the law, the first five books, there would be a reading from the prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, and then there would be a sermon on the Scripture an expository sermon on the scripture, and then a concluding blessing by the ruler of the synagogue. In other words, our current order or liturgy of worship is very similar to the synagogue. And the early church adopted this practice as well. So what do we have today that mirrors a lot of what happened in the synagogue? Well, we have singing of songs, We have the public reading of scriptures, we have prayers, we have a sermon from the scripture, and we have a closing blessing or benediction. So Jesus preached in the context of a local worship service. That's very important. This is an expository sermon in the context of a local church. This is not on the countryside. This is not in the marketplace. This is in the context of a worship service among God's people that Jesus is preaching, which is very similar to what most pastors do on the Lord's Day. They're preaching in the context of a worship service among God's people. So what was Jesus's text? What was the biblical passage that Jesus preached from? Well, the scroll was given to him, and in verses 18, we see that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Now, in the synagogue, there would be a reading from the prophets, usually the second reading, and then there would be an exposition or an explanation or a sermon. So Jesus was the guest that day, and the rabbi handed him the scroll, and it just so happened to automatically open to Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, which was a prophecy about Jesus himself. And so Isaiah has four main points or four main verbs in that passage of Scripture from Isaiah that describe what the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament will one day actually do. And so Jesus reads this. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the blind. Jesus came to liberate the oppressed, and Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it's very interesting. In three of these four actions, Jesus is the preacher or the proclaimer. He preaches the gospel of hope to sinners in bondage. He's sounding the trumpet like in the Old Testament days, the day of salvation, the day of jubilee. He's announcing And so Jesus is clearly preaching the gospel of salvation by explaining the text from Isaiah. So let me ask you some questions about preaching. Have you clearly explained the text? Or have you deviated from the text? Can your people follow along with their own eyes and see for themselves the truths or the points or the teachings that emerge 
from the text. Remember, expository preaching, we'll get to a definition later, I haven't quite given you the definition, but it comes from the word to expose, to expose your people to what is there in the text. The opposite of exposing is imposing. Do you impose your opinion on the Bible? Or do you attempt to expose what is written? John Stott says this, to expound Scripture is to bring out the text, what is there, and expose it to view. The expositor prizes open what appears to be closed, making plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted and unfolds what is tightly packed. The opposite of exposition is imposition, which is to impose on the text what is not there. So let's just review. A good, faithful, expository sermon is one where the pastor or the preacher has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Number two, you faithfully explain the text of Scripture. And then third, Jesus exalted himself as Savior and Lord. He exalted himself. He says today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this scripture is all about me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior. I'm the one that's coming to proclaim this good news. I'm the one that's going to liberate you. I'm the one that's going to free you. I'm the center of this sermon. Now, only Jesus can do that because he's the Son of God. But in our preaching, do we exalt Christ in our preaching? Charles Spurgeon famously challenged younger pastors with this statement. He said, we preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. <laughs> that's, that's only the way Spurgeon can say it. Many of you probably heard of the late J. Vernon McGee. Uh, he was famous for his Through the Bible series. Uh, he was the pastor of the Church of the Open Door in Los Angeles. And he had a plaque on his pulp that only he could read. And the plaque said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And this was from John 12, 21. And it reminded him that every time he got up to preach, his primary goal was to help his people see Jesus, not himself. So let's ask some questions to evaluate your sermons, the sermons you either preach or the sermons you listen to. Has Christ alone been exalted in your preaching or have you drawn attention to yourself? Have your stories or your personality gotten in the way of seeing Jesus as the only sufficient Savior and Lord? Do your people leave the service with a greater joy for seeing Jesus? Have their eyes been drawn to Jesus? Has the preaching event been more than a mere lecture where you've given them information, but you've turned it into a Christ-exalting time of worship. Has Christ been exalted? You see, here's the difference between a lecture and a sermon. There is a difference. We'll talk about this as we go forward in this series of podcasts, but let me just kind of address it now. There is a difference between a lecture and a sermon. 
In a lecture, you are feverishly taking notes because you want to glean information. A lecture is geared toward the mind, gathering information so that you can learn. It's very cognitive. It's about note-taking. But in a sermon, when Christ is exalted, as a pastor, I would hope that people put the pen down. They stop taking notes. And you are on the edge of your seat listening because you're no longer getting information, but you're worshiping Jesus because the preacher is exalting Christ. You're experiencing the joy of your Savior in that moment. You're worshiping Christ in that moment. And the preacher's not merely talking about Jesus, but he's showing you and exalting Jesus in all of his glory from the biblical passage. So the power of the Holy Spirit, number one, a clear explanation of the text, number two. Number three, exalting Christ as the center of the sermon. And then fourth, Jesus expected a response. Notice he says, today, today is the time for you to respond. The fulfillment of this prophecy is standing right before you. I am the Messiah. How will you respond? The message demanded a response. The the congregation could not remain neutral or unaffected to the reading, explaining, and expounding of the scriptures with Jesus as the focus. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ is preached. It demands a response. The response is repentance and faith. Hebrews 3.15, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Part of driving home a response is using illustrations and examples. And notice what Jesus does. He uses some examples from the Old Testament to impact his hearers. He gives two illustrations, if you will, to drive home his point, both from the Old Testament. And two illustrations that would have deeply offended these prideful Jews in his hometown of Nazareth. These were two examples in the Old Testament, specific strategic examples that Jesus used, where God chose to show grace and mercy outside of Israel to the unclean pagan Gentiles. The widow of Zarephath is from 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah went to the area of Sidon. He didn't go to the widows in Israel, but to the pagan outsiders. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we have the account of Elisha going to Naaman, the Syrian, and healing him of his disease in the river. And so Jesus gives a very poignant illustration if you will. And it's a a biblical illustration. He goes back to what they would know, but he gives two illustrations to bring home a response. And the response was very negative. So so much, they wanted to throw him off the cliff. Jesus knows their hearts and knows that this would have triggered them, and he does it anyway, because he doesn't want them to remain neutral. He wants them to come to the grip come to grips with the fact that he is the Messiah. And so as a pastor, as a preacher, we must expect, like John the Baptist, like Jesus, a negative response when the scriptures have been clearly explained. An effective biblical sermon is not judged or measured on how well it was received, but in how faithful to the Bible it was preached. And also, 
the Holy Spirit is the one that brings the results. So, how do you know a sermon has been faithfully preached? Just ask th- these, these four questions that we see from Jesus. Has the preacher been empowered by the Spirit? Are you praying for that? Are you relying upon the Spirit? Number two, has the Bible been clearly explained, exposited? And we'll get into more of this as we go, f- go forward. Number three, has Jesus been highly exalted? And has the preacher called for a response of repentance, obedience, and worship? So we see two examples of John the Baptist preaching and of Jesus preaching. And these give us some examples of how we can do preaching as well. And so as we continue through this study of expository preaching, uh, next podcast we're going to look at Luke chapter 24 and how Jesus' final sermon explaining the Old Testament serves as a template or a model for how the apostles actually preached when you go look at the book of Acts. So we're going to look at Jesus' sermon in lack, in, or his teaching in Luke 24 where he opened the eyes and opened the minds to understand the scriptures from the Old Testament. And then we'll see uh, some sermons in the book of Acts and how they did this same thing, this Christ-centered, expository, biblical preaching. So hopefully this has been helpful as we looked at the models of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 and Jesus' sermon in his hometown of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Well, I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Again, I will give you the link to my new book, 40 Days in Philippians. I'm thankful for it coming out through G3 Press. And uh, if you want to get in contact with me, you can go to seancole.net. You can friend me on Facebook. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. I'd love to be uh, connecting with you if you have any ideas for future podcasts or you'd like to um, invite me to your church or conference or whatever to speak or to do some teaching. I'd be more than happy to do that if my schedule so allows it. And so until next time, let us all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.